Hello and welcome to Monocle on Culture. I'm Robert Bounds. This year marks the 40th anniversary of the 1984 concert film Stop Making Sense by Talking Heads. Jonathan Demme's masterpiece, shot over three nights of performances by the band at Hollywood's Pantages Theatre, has been widely revered ever since as pure cinematic and musical wonder. Now, the film has recently been restored in 4K by those darlings of the indie studios A24. The resolution is gloriously rich, enhancing the film's idiosyncratic depiction of the feverish energy of that Talking Heads concert. A sweaty, exhilarating ode to live performance, same as it ever was. Today, we are discussing the concert movie genre, or in other words, films that should be played loud. Is Stop Making Sense the greatest film of a gig of all time? What makes a good concert movie? And for which artists do they work best? And where does the genre sit in 2023? Well, I'm joined in the studio to unpack all this and more by the film critic Simran Hans and by the chief rock and pop critic for The Times, Will Hodgkinson. But first, let's set the scene with a short snippet from the start of Stop Making Sense. Hi. I've got a tape I want to play. David Byrne has a tape. He'd like you to hear it. And the rest is musical history. It's the wonderful Stop Making Sense. And to talk us through it and the importance of concert films and documentaries in the whole world of music on the big screen, I'm joined by Simran Hans and Will Hodgkinson. Welcome both to the programme. Thank you. Lovely to have you both here. I think this is the first time you've met... IRL. You did a pandemic program. I think we did a pandemic Zoom so you've, time. You've, you've gazed at each other across a crowded Zoomosphere. Just, yeah, just about. Okay. Exactly. Nice. And now we're in the studio. And now we're in the studio. And it's a wonderful, wonderful reason to be here. Jonathan Demme's Stop Making Sense is being re-released into cinemas. I guess this is ageing, isn't it? But it's the 40th anniversary, I suppose. Of it. Or maybe, it's, maybe they just dusted off the celluloid. But... In what cinematic space, Simran, are we with Stop Making Sense? It's very spare, it's very clean. It is a soundstage at Warner Brothers' lot in early 1980s Los Angeles. What is this doing, I wonder, that other concert films isn't? Well, maybe a good place to start is to talk a little bit about the restoration first and why it's kind of being brought back to life because it's sort of widely regarded as the essential, quintessential concert film. And actually... They have restored the film, they've cleaned up the sound quite a bit and they've made it appropriate for IMAX, which is where I recently saw it. And I had seen it before and was sort of, you know, happy to go to a late night screening and see it on an absolutely ginormous screen. And I was really struck by how it is just a really good movie. Mm. I like Talking Heads, so obviously I was going to enjoy this film and enjoy watching it again. But it is such a good film, full stop. So it's directed by Jonathan Demme. It's not his only concert film. Maybe you'd like to know. Yes, I would. <laughs> he also has made concert films for Neil Young and oh, yeah. also Justin Timberlake. But this is the one that he's sort of really remembered for. And he was a fan of the band. The band were a fan of him. So that's how the kind of collaboration began. And even if you've not seen the film, you probably recognise bits in pop culture, right? 
the big suit, <laughs> David Byrne dancing with a light, with like a kind of yeah. tall lamp. We can talk about this in detail a bit later, but this must be the place. It's very affecting that. The choreography is beautiful with that standard lamp. Who knew it could be so romantic? Exactly. And and as you said, Rob, it kind of starts very spare. So, you know, in the clip, we heard Psycho Killer, and that's the first song that the set opens with. And it's just Burn on stage with an acoustic guitar. And slowly as the set progresses, you get more people coming to join the stage. The set dressing becomes more elaborate. It becomes more of a party. And um, as the film kind of progresses and, and builds, you get a sense of the relationships between the band and also their kind of relationship with the audience as well. It's amazing. Exactly. Well said. It is. It's sort of an incremental vibe, isn't it, I suppose, um, starting so sparely. Will, what's your um, memory of Stop Making Sense? It, it obviously is kind of musical lore, one of the greatest and most critically acclaimed bands, so important in the time that this film was made as well in the early 1980s. What, what are your reminiscences of this most the sort of peak music film? It was a different approach to a concert. That's mm. what I th- thought he did. You know, so uh, the way in which he comes on, you know, it's a, it's a boombox, isn't it, initially, when he's just, yeah. uh, you know, with Psycho Killer, so there's no band. i got a tape I want to play. That's right. <laughs> and then, you know, later on, everyone remembers the giant suit. So what it felt like to me, and Talking Heads were an art rock band, you know, they were pop-ish, but unusual ideas coming in. It felt like it was, you know, the film is quite straightforward in a way. But what's so fascinating about it is the way that the concert is structured in a theatrical fashion. So it it, it does build and there's a sense of fun to it. But you can tell that the whole thing has been very, very highly stage managed. Yeah. Which isn't typical for rock concerts. Rock concerts tend to be sloppy and everyone comes on. Hey, man, how's everyone doing? And <laughs> it's not like that. This is a different, a different thing. And so as much as it's a, a brilliant concert film... It's a film of a brilliant concert. It's not that complicated, do you know what I mean? And I think that was that sort of changed things because it was this idea of what you could do in a concert in with imagination as opposed to a huge set. Now, you know, I have to cover concerts all the time and most of the money now, and especially big arena concerts, is put into this big production. You know, it's put into the lights and so on. With this, I didn't really think that was the case. It's much more that it's put into the theatrical imagination of the whole thing. Yeah, it's, well, discuss, I suppose, because I wonder how much choreography is noticeable, how much sort of stagecraft and filmcraft, Simran, you see in the making of the film, because it's kind of got a, it's kind of Brechtian, right? You see the stagehands coming on, you see the lighting, people changing things and flashing things, uh, lights in people's faces to get shadow effects on, on some of the, the most beautiful and affecting moments are super simple, almost like shadow puppets, aren't they? So how much can you see as a, as a, as a film writer? I think the simplicity of it is why it's aged so well because you just get so immersed and caught up in the performance and I think that's something that you know all concert films are trying to do and not everything achieves it's trying to capture the experience of live music which is this ephemeral kind of bodily experience I think one of the things that you can't always guarantee is a performance, right? So you might turn up to a string of shows and each day might be different. And they shot this, I think, over maybe three different shows and then cut them together. It was two or three. And it's like lightning in a bottle. It's this Hmm. band at the absolute peak of their artistry. And of course, they split up not very long afterwards. And, you know, one interesting thing about going to the IMAX screening, um, it was sort of 
timed with the the world premiere of this restoration at the Toronto Film Festival. So there was a live streamed Q and A afterwards, which chaired, has become slightly notorious. Well, so it was chaired by Spike Lee. Some would say inexpertly chaired by Spike Lee, and. Obviously, you're just reminded how much they all bloody hate each other. The tension between them is so obvious. And yet, when you watch this movie, you see them still working together and creating this experience for the audience, which is kind of interesting in the way Demi shoots it because he doesn't really have cutaways to the audience. You maybe get a few kind of shots of of the crowd to give a sense of the scale in the room, but you don't have reaction shots. You don't have people cheering and applauding. It's way more about the relationship between the people on stage, the chemistry, the kind of goofy moments, the side glances, and they're all characters that you get to know through the performance. So I think that's really what he's doing, Jonathan Demme. You know, something else that I think he captured is that moment where David Byrne was about to fly the coop as well, Mm. you know, because he is such a star in it. But it is Talking Heads. The reason it works is because they're such a good band. And, you know, these songs were put together by a band. But you sense that, you know, David Byrne is, is already kind of on the way, which is, I think, again, why it's such a good movie, because it, it, it captures a, a fault line almost. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And I felt that was very noticeable watching it recently, um, you know, for, for in, in, this, in its new rendition or its sort of tidied up uh, edition, that David Byrne is such a kind of ball of focus and there is no fat on any of those songs. Everything is note perfect. As you say, you get the chance to do this if you record it over one, two or three nights of this performance but there is also no fat on the concert there's no banter with the audience there's no kind of joshing between bandmates either is there Simran I mean it's very it's very lean clean and business-like but I suppose the music and the amazing percussion as much as all of the musicianship in it in it lends itself perhaps to this this presentation we do get these tiny moments of intimacy between the band (laughs) but it's not part of the performance for the audience it's something that a documentary filmmaker or a filmmaker with a documentary approach notices and is attuned to so when you see these little glances or winks or dance moves and those kind of glimmers of them enjoying themselves that's the kind of documentary aspect of it but um, as you say the performance is so meticulously choreographed and executed and you know David Byrne he's a control freak and it's I guess part of why we think of him as an artistic genius as well right mm. and what what it's, it's been people have, have said before that this is a reaction against the sort of musical culture or the visualization of musical culture in the early 1980s the MTVification and videos and all the rest of it and now I was intrigued to read that recently um what's well what's your take on on that because it is it's super on MTV this isn't it well MTV changed everything mm. because suddenly they had to think about you know basically it was, it was the dawn of the video age that was the big one so MTV changed the way in which artists who were big at the time I mean it had been Prince Michael Jackson Madonna Bruce Springsteen you know it was that era so everything got international and it got very flash um, and suddenly because MTV was although essentially American it was available all over the world it changed completely changed things Uh, talking heads were an art rock band but they were also had they had hits so i think they were i don't think it would have been conscious at the time i think that's probably a retroactive view i i I don't know you know who knows but uh, but i think but in terms of doing something which is a lot more artistic than the kind of flashiness of that that mtv era i think that's definitely true you know they it was it was going back to the performance as opposed to Mm. you know i don't know 
the perfume ad Huey Lewis kind of. news wherever it was <laughs> yeah. yeah you know yeah. it's going it's going away from you know the kind of open top car and the dusty desert and you know the beautiful girl and whatever you know yeah. all, the, all the MTV cliches and it, well, is there any sense in that what do you what's your reading of, of the idea that it's a reaction against MTV and the kind of perfume the kind of glossy production on certain MTV kind of on certain music videos I wonder if it's it's less that and it's more specific to Talking Heads as a band and their own aesthetic because yeah. David Byrne describes himself as a sort of slightly awkward white guy who doesn't really like feel that comfortable dancing and it's he's playing into that aspect of his character rather than trying to be like Prince, for example, or like Michael Jackson. And I, I guess maybe it's n- not exactly fair to make those comparisons given that they're quite different artists or sort of working on a different scale. But I think, as Will said, they are an art rock band and they lean into that sensibility and maybe that is why it does feel more Brechtian and kind of... Yeah, and there's Cabaret Voltaire elements in this yeah. crazy big suit. You know, there's, it's very... It's a sort of... There's a kind of... I don't know, you call it a kind of is a European expressionist route to this stuff, right? If well, it's in with the art rock band stuff, it's Bauhaus, isn't it? What was that? I might have got this wrong, but I think David Byrne studied at Rhode Island Art of Design, yeah. uh, a school of art and design. So he came from that whole sensibility anyway. Yeah. He'd understand yeah, yeah. how things are constructed. And apparently the uh, the big suit is a reference to Japanese dramas, Japanese stage dramas, because he had been over there and somebody had said, you know, in Japan, you've got to make everything bigger. And so he sort of thought it was funny to yeah. make the suit bigger. It is so funny. When he takes the jacket off and he's like sort of a big hipped old man, isn't he? It's, it's very it's sculptural. Sort of yeah. It is. It's so slightly grotesque. Isn't but it? yes, it's and also great. you're right. He wasn't, it was the opposite of, of trying to be cool. Because the 80s was, you know, especially that period, it's all about being slick and cool and sexy. And so here comes the lead singer who's actually celebrating his, yeah, his, his yeah. nerdiness, nerdiness. Yeah. Know. And doing it really unsuccessfully because he looks so damn cool, doesn't he? He does. He doesn't <laughs> though because he does seem awkward. You, you kind of know that he's going to be an awkward guy to talk to if you're going to sit you there do. and have a drink with him. He's, he's going to come out weird, you know. Yeah. So you sort of <laughs> it's, it works. It works on both ways. But, yeah, um, they're all vibing, and that 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 kind of sense of them all enjoying themselves is so infectious. It really is. Yeah, I found it very moving watching it, even on small screen, loud headphones. But we will take Simran's lead and try and watch it in the IMAX and encourage all our listeners to do so. Right? If you have the opportunity to see it really big, it is a really fun experience. Yeah, it's gorgeous stuff. So I wonder what, we, to broaden this out, and I'll start with you, Will, where, I wonder, does this sit in the concert movie kind of firmament with The Last Waltz and D.A. Penny Baker's Ziggy Stardust, wonderful film about the last concert, the Hammersmith Apollo. Where does this sit in that pantheon? It's quite produced, but it's not just people on a stage, but it seems like it might be. Where are we in the, in, in the world? It sits in the capturing of the concert in the mm. way that we, you know, we discussed already. Um and by that point, by I think 1984, you'd had had groundbreaking films, which were kind of, I guess you'd say, cinema verite concert movies. Mm-hmm. So the obvious one is Ziggy Stardust, uh, because with Ziggy Stardust, there's there's no there's no narrative, no, no you know no narrator. 
there's a lot of audience footage, really fantastic audience footage, where everyone's dressed up like Bowie and they're enacting the scenes from Moon Age Daydream and all this kind mm. of stuff and really, really capturing... The makeup, the The makeup, gestures. the clothes. So what that film does absolutely brilliantly is capture, captures the entire mood, right down to the kind of graininess of the, the film stock, the mood of Bowie's last Ziggy Stardust concert. And, you know, you see Angie Bowie and you see Mick Ronson and all these people. So for me, that film was really about... It wasn't so much about the performance, and it's actually really dark, shot really, you know, it's very, very darkly shot, the performance. And so it's it's really about the atmosphere of the concert, you know, in Hammersmith Odeon in, was it 1974? 1974, was it? It was a bit earlier than that, wasn't it? 1972, I think. Yeah. Anyway, so you have that. Um, <laughs> we could go back. I think you'll find. <laughs> Do some Bowie nerdiness. Um, but, then, but then the last waltz is different again. I mean, that was Scorsese. And then you've got a film which is really about the uh, the summation of the classic rock era, because mm. that's what that concert was. And so it wasn't just the band. Bob Dylan was in there, Joni Mitchell, Neil Young, Dr. John, the Staple Singers, all of these huge names from the 60s and 70s. And within that, you get interviews with Robbie Robertson and, members, and Garth Hudson and you know, the other members of the band. So that was a different thing again. Although he was capturing a successful band's final concert and all their celebrity chums coming along and doing bits and pieces to me that was really about the end of an era and 78 i mean punk had happened by then mm. there's verite there's reality but it's a different sort of reality it's reality creeping in somehow perhaps i think verite cinema to me the ziggy stardust is real cinema yeah. variety movie i think the last waltz is different because it's it was so heavily edited and incredible problems on that film you know bob dylan who you know, the band was his backing band. They're meant to be his great friends, the whole thing. He, initially, he said, right, Martin Scorsese is not allowed to film anything whatsoever. And then he relented five minutes before he was going to go on stage. He said, you can record two songs. And it wasn't because of artistic purity. It's because he had his own film coming out and he yeah. didn't want it ruined. You know, so he had his own concert film called Ronaldo and Clara, which is quite unwatchable, actually. You know, so you had all that kind of stuff. You had all the egos all going on behind the scenes. So, yeah, I think, where, where does it sit in the firmament? I mean, to me, Stop Making Sense is about a brilliant performance. That's what that film's about. Ziggy Stardust is about the, the fans, I think, and what Bowie meant to them. The Last Waltz is about this kind of overindulged era, which is coming to an end. It made amazing music, but it was also, by the end of the 70s, was falling apart. Yeah, interesting. I, it's, it's interesting to take that take that long view on on those on those particular films. Simran, I wonder where it sits for you. I mean, I know that you've made this highly watchable short. <laughs> not enough of it. Um, it's for the BBC iPlayer pop docs kind of subgenre, and this is about was about pop documentaries. Yeah. And I wanted to, if I can quote yourself back to, without you cringing, because it's a very interesting, it's it's touching on what Will's saying with The Last Waltz and Scorsese's lens on performers like Dylan, that, that it's these stars, which are Katy Perry, MIA, Taylor Swift and Beyonce, about relinquishing control on their terms, which is an, is interesting territory to, to, to tiptoe across. Yeah, so I, I made this um, this short essay film about sort of the genre of pop documentary, and I think what I'm interested in is 
sort of to what extent these films are marketing for a star's brand and mm. kind of them trying to control the narrative about themselves and present a version of themselves, but also somehow give you a behind the scenes glimmer of a bit of reality or a bit of authenticity, which is what the documentary is you know, purporting to do in, in the form. And so I think there are some examples that are successful at this and some that feel incredibly engineered. And for me, the gold standard of of sort of pop doc is Madonna, Truth or Dare, which captures her at a really interesting moment in her stardom. And she famously gave final cut to the director. She didn't sort of meddle with it. And I think the film really benefits from that because you have another perspective rather than it feeling very kind of sanctioned and authored by the star itself, which is the thing that makes it kind of feel like it might just be promotional material. Yeah. I mean, I feel like... That like... thing you get when you you take the book off the shelf and you see official biography on the front and you put it back. <laughs> you just know, yeah. <laughs> you, yeah. Exactly. And I, I sort of feel that something like the sort of fairly recent Taylor Swift documentary, Miss Americana, it's quite interesting if you're a Taylor Swift fan, but also it's very clear to me that she has okayed it and it feels very sanitized. And as a music fan, or you know, just even generally somebody who's interested in celebrity culture, you you want to know the behind the scenes, and you don't really feel you get that intimacy when you can feel the the star's fingerprints all over it. You know, I think it depends on the character of the star, definitely in that situation. You know, Taylor Swift for you know, mm. uh, hugely talented, obviously very controlling, and obviously very careful about her image so true but the Madonna truth or doubt I completely forgot it's true it's really good isn't it it's, there's all those scenes where there's the dancers who are upset because they feel that they've been slightly sidelined there's one who's kind of he's gay but he's sort of in love with her and there's there's all that stuff going on which you wouldn't get from a Taylor Swift style totally controlled documentary yeah, yeah. giving editorial control to the director when you're someone of the stature of Madonna that's very Madonnaish. it seems to me to be like I'm strong enough. You can, t- you can anything will bounce off me, right? As a well, brand, Coca Cola bottle. There's a famous scene, right? Uh, I think you know. I'm sure, I'm sure you know which one I'm talking about. You know, you, she does just... something unspeakable with a Coca Cola bottle. That was not going to happen with Taylor Swift. <laughs> <laughs> She's just goofing around with her dancers, and you see this kind of unguarded moment. But I think may- maybe my working theory on on why that film is particularly special, and you know. It, I would apply to you stop making sense as well is that these films capture the artist at a very specific point in their career when they're peaking it's like mm. a, uh, it's not a low ebb it's them kind of in their imperial period which you can't really know until history has run its course you know um i think of something like the lady gaga documentary and that's actually getting her at a low ebb mm. you know and maybe that's why it's not as satisfying there can be some brilliant films about bands really at their lowest ebb, though. There's an amazing one about a band called Pentagram. Do you know that? Do you know yeah, that film? Yeah. And he's a total hopeless crack addict by the time that they made the film. Oh yeah. And therefore, it's... the pathos of it is just brilliant. Anvil is is an amazing sort of fantastic rock. It's a sort of real life Spinal Tap. It, it is. Yeah. Sadly, just... there's. I mean, this is a rich seam as well, right? There, there are lots of and Lawrence of Belgravia is another kind of great one. Well, obviously, yeah, you know, personal personal favorite, <laughs> well, right? exactly. my all time favorite. Yeah. But I would say there's one that I did want to mention actually because it's just thinking of what what Simran said is that you can't plan these things necessarily in Madonna Truth or Dare and stop making sense. Captive these artists at their height. My all-time favourite, I think, probably my all-time favourite um, music documentary, if that's the word, is Gimme Shelter. 
Now, that could not have been planned in any way whatsoever. You know, the concert that the Rolling Stones were playing was meant to be a kind of Woodstock for the West. So in terms of years, for listeners, this is 69, 70, isn't it's it? December 69. Yeah. December the 9th, 1969. Oh, and, God, uh, someone let it there. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> um, and it was, it was just remarkable because this was the concert. There was the, the Stones were going to give a free concert. There was going to be, you know, the Flying Burrito Brothers and all these very hippie-ish bands were supporting. At the last minute, it got taken out of where it was meant to be in San Francisco and put in the Altamont Speedway, which is this horrible, dusty speedway in the middle of nowhere. And you had, you know, something like 60,000 fried hippies turning up, you know, loads of people on acid, Hell's Angels doing the security, and a stage which was far too low, which created serious security. And this is the concert, very famously, where a young fang was stabbed to death by the Hell's Angels. And the entire thing is captured on film. And we see Mick Jagger watching the rushes of the stabbing and trying to work out what happened and how it gone so wrong. So there's no way that the Mazels brothers who made that film could ever mm. in a million years have known. But it sort of en- ended up being a film which is so much bigger than its subject because it's really about the death of the 60s. Yes, it's funny. I mean, in all these, a couple of the films that you've spoken of are kind of like end of the era, end of an era kind of films. They are the accidental summation of something or the capturing of of the sort of uh, setting of a certain kind of musical sun or cultural moment, I suppose. Just quickly, to give our listeners two things to whiz away and stream, buy, download, whatever... We take Stop Making Sense as a given, obviously. Uh, this is a programme in celebration of that fantastic revised film. What, um, what are you going to offer people um, to, uh, to leave home with? Well, I have already recommended Madonna, Truth or Dare, so if you can get hold of that, get hold of that. Tick, but yes. I'm not going to count that as my two. I would really like to recommend a film called Amazing Grace, which is about uh, an Aretha Franklin concert. And it is just in the same way that Stop Making Sense captures this very transcendent concert experience. This, I think, is doing something very similar. And it's just really kind of beautiful, immersive film. And then I also, you know, if you haven't seen it, head on over to Netflix and re-watch Beyonce's... Ho- well, if you haven't seen it, then you won't be re-watching it. But watch <laughs> Beyonce's Homecoming because that was her Coachella show yeah. a few years ago that was filmed. And I do think that in terms of pure concert films, it is still so dynamic. The artistry is very impressive. The choreography, the brass band, the staging, and just her skill. I think, you know, there's plenty of Beyonce documentaries and music videos you can watch, but that, I think, is is really quite special. Beautiful. Uh, and, Will, you've, you've given us Gimme Shelter, Ziggy and The Last Waltz. Do we have any anything left in Hodgkinson's film tank, I wonder? We do. I've nice. got two. One of them is called Summer of Soul. And it's yeah. about the, it, it was made by Questlove from The Roots. And uh, it's about the Harlem Cultural Festival, which happened in the same summer as Woodstock. And it was described as the Black Woodstock. And it's, the performances are out of this world. I mean, you've got the Fifth Dimension, who at the time was seen as a kind of easy listening band, but they just absolutely blow, blow the stage away. They're so good. I think the staple singers are there and Sly and the Family Stone are absolutely fantastic. And it was a really joyous film because it's got lots of reminiscences from the people who are there. But also it meant a lot because at the time it's... America's still a racially very divided place, but particularly at the time in in, uh, 1969 in Harlem. 
and it's just so celebratory and it was very peaceful and it's a big family affair to use a sly stone term um so that's great and then i'm going to leave listeners with the film you mentioned uh which is lawrence of belgravia uh-huh. so lawrence single moniker was in a very pioneering 80s indie band called felt who are tipped for very big things cult favourites but didn't really get that big then he reinvented himself in in the 90s as a band called Denim who were basically Britpop before Britpop and it all went wrong Isn't that frustrating he never had anything to do with suede no, no, before all that. <laughs> no. But it was 1990, 92. It was before, yeah, yeah. before the Britpop um, hordes. And he really, he really had the same ideas of kind of looking at nostalgia and childhood and all these different stuff and the way Britain was. And had a, a song called Summer Smash was going to be a hit and then it was going to be released on the same day that Lady Diana died and every single copy was not just destroyed but literally melted down. Um, and he fell into a tailspin and he became an addict and ended up homeless. And Lawrence of Belgravia catches him. It's made about 10 years ago now. And it catches him when he's rebuilding his life. So he's leaving the hostel. He's moving into a flat. He's got a new band together called Go Kart Mozart. And he's just trying to get things going again. It's, he's a hilarious character. And it's a brilliant film. There is a lot of verite in that film, isn't there? Uh, it's about yeah. too much bloody verite. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds great. I'd never heard of it. Oh, it's brilliant. It's really good. Really brilliant. Yeah. Will and Simran, thank you so much. Such a rich theme to mine um, on music films, concert films. I'm all in service of the wonderful Stop Making Sense. See it on as big a screen as you can, says Simran. We echo these sentiments on this programme. Thank you both uh, very much indeed for your time. And that is all for this week. My thanks to Simran Hans and Will Hodgkinson. The newly restored Stop Making Sense is out in IMAX worldwide now and in the UK, US and Canadian cinemas on the 29th of September. Monocle on Culture is produced by Sophie Monaghan-Coombs and Steph Chungu, and Steph also edits the show. Many thanks also to Callum McLean for his help with this episode. And we will see you at the same time next week. But until then, from me, Robert Bounds, thank you for tuning in.